Please, congregation, turn your Bibles this morning in the first place to Psalm 51. As we continue our series through our Lord's Beatitudes, we look at Psalm 51 as well as a passage from Luke 18, each of which illustrates something of what it is to be poor in spirit. Read Psalm 51 in the first place. The choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's turn also to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He told them also this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then turn over to Matthew chapter 5.
Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congregation, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. With your congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we heard last Sunday, we remind ourselves once again this morning that in these Beatitudes, the King is speaking. And as the King speaks, he speaks as one having great authority. He speaks as one who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks as no one else has ever spoken before. And what he speaks is not in the first place a word of condemnation, but a word of blessing. Christ is declaring that those who belong to him and to his kingdom are blessed. And in so doing, he's describing what his people are like. That's what he's doing in these Beatitudes. He's answering the question, what does the true Christian look like? What does the true kingdom citizen look like? And that's a relevant question because this, of course, is at the very heart of Christ's preaching ministry. This was at the the very center of his proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has been going all throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is good news, you see, because the kingdom coming signifies the reversal of what happened in the fall in the garden. The kingdom of heaven signifies not only the coming of reconciliation, but also restoration. And now here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus tells us who this kingdom is actually belongs to. And to the world's surprise, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as we'll see in each of these Beatitudes, we're confronted this morning with a paradox of sorts. A paradox, boys and girls, is something that doesn't seem to add up. A paradox is a statement that at first glance seems to be self-contradictory, but upon further examination, proves to be well-founded and true. And that's certainly the case here with this first beatitude. For how can it be that those who are poor in spirit are at the same time blessed? But the Christian life, we recognize, is full of paradoxes like this, isn't it? You might think of what Christ says in Matthew 16, 25, where he says that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Think of the paradox that that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, if anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I am weak, that is when I am strong. With these beatitudes or paradoxical statements you see, Jesus is is turning the wisdom and the logic of the world over on its head. The inheritors of the kingdom of heaven are not those who think much of themselves. They are not those who, who rely upon themselves and on their own strength. But the inheritors of the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson calls these paradoxes sacred paradoxes because they show us clearly where the doctrine of Christ and the opinions of the world plainly differ. And as they do that, they cause true believers to be 
transformed by the renewing of their minds as they begin to, to renounce those opinions and philosophies of the world, as they begin to trade in the false philosophies of the world for the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. If Jesus were to have said, blessed are the rich, or blessed are the self-reliant and the self-sufficient, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the world would have nodded and say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But to the world's confusion and bewilderment, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's, it's a kingdom like no other kingdom. But it's a glorious kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is this kingdom. And so as we seek to unpack the meaning of this beatitude, we need to answer three questions together this morning. The first of which is simply this, who are they? Just who exactly are the poor in spirit? What is it that makes the, the citizens of Christ's kingdom so different from the citizens of the kingdom of this world? In the second place, we need to answer the question, well, why are they blessed? How can it be that those who are poor in spirit are those who are blessed by God? And then in the third place, what do they possess? What does Christ mean when he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? We consider in the first place who they are. Who are the poor in spirit? I said last Sunday that the Beatitudes are not so much prescriptions as they are descriptions. The Beatitudes provide for us somewhat of a, a comprehensive portrait of what every Christian looks like. Now we're going to learn that the first aspect to that picture, that portrait, is poverty of spirit. And so to understand something of, of who they are, who the poor in spirit are, we have to say something in the first place of who they aren't. Contrary to what some have suggested, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not making any sort of of socioeconomic statement, which is to say our Lord isn't drawing a line of contrast between those who have a lot in the world versus those who have little in the world. If that were the case, then this beatitude wouldn't really speak to any of us since relative to many other places around the world, we have more than enough. And while the Bible does, of course, address those who have more and those who have less. We know the proverb, give me neither poverty nor riches. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. We recognize, yes, that to some God has given more, and to some God has given less. But those who have less are not automatically, by that fact, more blessed than those who have more. For some Christians, right, Sinclair Ferguson, have given away all their possessions on the base of this beatitude so as to possess nothing and yet they still lack the poverty of spirit that our Lord is describing here. For poverty is no guarantee of spirituality. There are many in the world who are every bit as proud as they are poor. There are many in the world who, while having nothing to their name, yet insist on living in self-reliance and in self-sufficiency. Poverty is no guarantee of true spirituality. Another way that this beatitude has often been misunderstood or misconstrued is to say that the poor in spirit are those who have somewhat a bad self-image of themselves or a low self-esteem. And so it's suggested by some that perhaps our Lord is saying that those who are of a more subdued personality are more blessed than those of a more outgoing personality. 
But that's not what our Lord is getting at either. Christ is not commending one kind of personality over another kind of personality. But what we have to keep in mind, not only in this beatitude, but in all the beatitudes, and really throughout the entirety of this Sermon on the Mount, is that everything Christ teaches in this sermon is grounded in that which was already set forth in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the poor is almost a technical term used to describe a particular group of people who by the grace of God have come to see their desperate neediness before God and who have by that neediness come to flee to God for help and rescue. Think of, for example, how David describes himself in Psalm 34, verse 6. As David reflects on that time when he was on the run from King Saul, he says, this poor man cried. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Or think of how David describes himself elsewhere in Psalm 40. In verse 12 of Psalm 40, David confesses that evils had encompassed him beyond number and that his iniquities had overtaken him so that he could not see. He confesses in verse 12 that they were more than the hairs on his head and that his heart had failed him. And so he describes himself in Psalm 40, verse 17, as being poor and needy. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. The Lord is my help and my deliverer. And similar statements elsewhere underscore essentially the same exact thing. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that they have nowhere to go but to God himself. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that they have nothing and that they can do nothing to save themselves. And so as beggars, they cry out to God for rescue. To quote the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson again, the phrase poor in spirit then signifies those who are brought to the sense of their sins and seeing no goodness in themselves, despair in themselves, and appeal wholly to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. To give another definition, poverty in spirit is not speaking of weakness of character, but rather of a person's relationship with God. It is a positive spiritual orientation. It is the converse or the opposite of the arrogant self-confidence, which not only rides roughshod over the interests of other people, but more importantly causes a person to treat God as irrelevant. It's the opposite of that. Or if you want Calvin's simpler definition, the poor in spirit are those who, seeing nothing in themselves, flee to God's mercy for sanctuary. And this is what we see illustrated in places like Psalm 51 and Luke 18. David and the tax collector light give us a, a window into what poverty of spirit looks like. To be poor in spirit is to sincerely Plead with David, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your abundant love, have mercy upon me and blot out all my transgressions. To be poor in spirit is to recognize with David that our sin has so defiled us before God that we need to be cleansed from the inside out. We don't just need a little scrubbing here and there, but we need to be washed thoroughly, as David says. We need to be purged. A new heart and a new spirit has to be placed within us. To be poor in spirit is to adopt the posture of the, of the tax collector who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but, but who beat his breast saying, God, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. The poverty of spirit that our Lord says is blessed by God is the spirit of the prodigal in Luke 15, who having left his father in pride, eventually came to his senses and in humility and poverty of spirit, returned home empty-handed, looking only to what his father might give him. The old hymn captures poverty of spirit quite well. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I come. Foul, spiritually defiled. Unclean, unfit, foul I fly to thy fountain. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This congregation is who the Christian is. Every child of God who has come to know Christ and in whose heart the Spirit has made his home is by virtue of that fact poor in spirit. If you're a true Christian, you can't not be poor in spirit. There's just no way. Isn't this precise what the Apostle Paul came to know after his conversion? Before his conversion, Paul was the farthest thing possible from being poor in spirit. Just read through his long list of credentials in Philippians chapter 3. Paul was just like the Pharisee from our Lord's parable. Circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Asked the law, Pharisee asked to zeal a persecutor of the church. And so for a long time, Paul thought awfully highly of himself, didn't he? But then when Paul was confronted with the glory of Christ, he finally came to see that his credentials were all rubbish. When he was confronted with the humility of Christ, he came to see that his clothes of self-righteousness, of self-reliance could not withstand the heat of God's holiness. That's what God showed him. That's what God shows us as well. When the Holy Spirit makes that breach in the believer's heart, the first thing he does is reveal to that person his neediness, his absolute need for the grace of a Savior, his need for someone outside of himself to come and save him. And when the Spirit does that, when he leads us to see our real condition, that's when poverty of spirit is born in our hearts. And that's when undeceived at last we finally come to see that there is only hope in the Lord himself. Christ begins with poverty of spirit, says one pastor, because poverty of spirit is the very basis and foundation for all the other graces that follow. Until a man be poor in spirit, he cannot mourn aright. Unless a man is, is poor in spirit, he'll never hunger and thirst for righteousness, because how can he hunger unless, unless he knows that he is empty? Unless he knows that, that he has nothing. Poverty of spirit, says Watson, is a jewel that every Christian must wear. For whoever is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. How can they be filled unless they are emptied? If the hand is full of pebbles, how can it receive gold? And so... It is with the heart that remains full of pride. How can the heart that is full of pride 
be filled with grace. Unless we are poor in spirit, Christ will never be precious in our eyes. Unless we are poor in spirit and come to see how much we lack, Christ will never be worth anything to us. And so the question might well be asked, well, how, how may we know whether or not we are poor in spirit? How can you examine yourself and discern if, if you're poor in spirit? Well, to answer that question, Thomas Watson gives seven answers pointing to seven blessed effects that poverty of spirit has on a person's life. In the first place, he says, the poor in spirit are those who have become weaned from themselves. The poor in spirit are like that child in Psalm 131 who, who rests in the breast of God rather than, than in himself. In the second place, he says, the poor in spirit are those who admire Christ. They have high thoughts of Christ and they go to Christ for comfort and healing. Thirdly, the poor in spirit are those who not only give thanks to God for the grace they've already been given, but the poor in spirit are those who continually plead for God's grace, recognizing that they're every bit as needy today as they were yesterday. The poor in spirit are those who are lowly in heart. The more grace they receive, the humbler they become. Faithfully, the poor in spirit are those who are much in prayer. Just as Jesus lived throughout the entirety of his life, depending on his Father, praying to his Father, well, the poor in spirit do the same. In the sixth place, those who are poor in spirit are those who take Christ on his own terms. They, they receive him as Savior and Lord. The poor in spirit will live as Christ calls them to live. They will put to death what Christ calls them to put to death. And lastly, he says, the poor in spirit will be exalters of God's free grace in Christ. Having come to know the grace of God for themselves, they will desire that others would know that grace too. Such are the poor in spirit. This is who they are. So we see in the second place, concern in the second place, well then why are they blessed? As I said before, the statement of this beatitude is among the great paradoxes of the Christian life. We live in a world that encourages us to develop every kind of spirit besides poverty of spirit. But Jesus says to the world what he says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.17, you think that you're rich, you think that You've acquired wealth and that you don't need a thing. But what you don't realize is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Only the poor in spirit are blessed by God. Only the poor in spirit know the divine favor of God. And so before we consider in the last place what it is that the poor in spirit possess, we need to recognize in the first place that the poor in spirit are blessed because the king says they are. The poor in spirit are blessed because Jesus says they're blessed. You see, when the world mocks and ridicules the church for being the church, when the world sees the church under attack and imagines that, well, if there is a God, then the church must be under the curse of God. The church says, although it might not always look like it, we know that we are blessed by God. The poor in spirit are blessed by God because 
their status before God is that of being justified in His sight. They're blessed because the Lord shows grace to the poor in spirit. He regards their cries and their tears and their prayers of confession. Not too long ago, we considered the infamous account from David's life, the story of David and Bathsheba, how David saw her and desired her and took her and then killed Uriah to, to cover it all up and how the thing that he had done had displeased the Lord. But in Psalm 51, after David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet, and as David now repents to the Lord as he confesses his sin, what is it that, that assures King David? We find the answer in verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That heart that is humble, that heart that is broken over one's guilt before God, that heart, that is in other words, poor in spirit, that heart, God will not despise. So we heard in our call to worship from Isaiah 57, There is indeed comfort for the contrite, the very same God who is high and lifted up, the very same God who who inhabits eternity and who dwells in the high and holy place. That very same God dwells also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. It is not the very point that our Lord is underscoring in his parable. Which of the two men goes home justified. Was it the proud Pharisee boys and girls who said, Lord, I I thank you that I'm not like other men? Was he the one who went home justified? Of course not, says Jesus. But rather it was the poor in spirit tax collector who beat his breast, who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, who said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That man, says Jesus, went home went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The the poor in spirit are blessed in the first place because they alone know God's favor. They're blessed in the second place because of what it is that they possess. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus, for theirs or more literally, theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize that they are far from worthy of the kingdom are the very ones who receive the kingdom. They're the very ones to whom Christ says, the kingdom is yours. It's the great paradox of the Christian life. Jesus comes to the poor in spirit. He comes to those who know that they're needy. He comes to those who have nothing, who know they can do nothing. And he says, fear not, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This kingdom is given to you to possess forever. You can't merit your way into the kingdom, nor can you sin your way out of the kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven is given to you by God himself, as he himself makes you to be co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. In virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ, God himself puts the victor's crown upon your head. He puts the, the royal regalia upon your shoulders. He puts the king's scepter in your hand and he, and he makes room for you on the throne. Paul says that we are even now seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's a kingdom that's like no other kingdom in all the world. 
other kingdoms are built and defended by mere men. And so they all come and go with the passing of from one age to the next. But the kingdom of heaven is built by God himself. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that Hebrews says cannot be shaken. It's an everlasting kingdom wherein nothing is lacking. It's a kingdom that is so everlasting that not even death itself has the power to take the kingdom out of the believer's hands. For the poor in spirit, their death is not the payment for their sins we confess in Lord's Day 16, but it's simply the entrance into an even fuller experience of that kingdom where communion with God is no longer hindered by sin or by the cares of the world. It's a kingdom of grace and peace, grace and peace that have been bought with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being himself poor in spirit, Jesus pled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And being poor in spirit, he he cried out to God from the cross. But there at the cross we find the one and only exception in all of human history where God did not rescue the poor in spirit. Where God did not rescue him who was reliant upon the Father. But it was there at the cross of Christ the poor in spirit died for those who by nature were proud of spirit. In order that he might provide for them an everlasting kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, God has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness. He's transferred you into this glorious kingdom of his own beloved son. As Paul says in Philippians 3, you're citizens of that kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, says Paul, and from there we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the same power that even now enables him to subject all things under himself. That's what awaits the poor in spirit. That's what God has in store for them. That's what God has in store for you. Let us therefore, says Paul, walk in a manner worthy of God who has called us into this kingdom, and into his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of blessing that we who are poor in spirit possess the kingdom of heaven. Father, we pray that you would cause every one of us to grow in this grace of God born by your spirit in our hearts. May we grow in poverty of spirit. May we grow increasingly to see our neediness. May we confess more boldly and more sincerely that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. May that be the confession that we live by. May that confession be written upon our hearts. May we recognize that we too are poor and needy. May we take comfort in knowing that you're the God who blesses the poor and needy. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. May we live in light of this promise. May we we 
indeed walk worthily of this kingdom until the king comes again. This we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.